Hello, and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley, and today we are joined by an old friend and member of the St. Emlyn's team who was here in Virchester for many years before he went across the Atlantic and has, well, done amazing things over there, creating an incredible reputation, particularly around the high-level, high-end resuscitation, in particular endovascular resuscitation, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So, Zaf, introduce yourself. Hey, Simon. Thanks for uh, having me. Always uh, great to be on the podcast and as part of the St. Emlyn's team. Uh, so I'm Zaf Kassim. I am an emergency physician and a critical care physician. I uh, trained in uh, Virchester and uh, on completion of my training, I moved to the United States where I completed uh, another critical care fellowship at uh, Shock Trauma in Baltimore and currently work as an EM and critical care physician in uh, Philadelphia. And you might have heard Zaf on Twitter, and you may have heard him at conferences. He's getting a really good reputation now for, as I say, this endovascular resuscitation type of thing. And he also teaches, what's the course that you teach on, the one with Scott Weingart over in the US? Yeah, it's the Reanimate course, which is uh, a joint collaboration, Zach Shiner, Joe Belezzo, and uh, Scott Weingart uh, teaching uh, ED-based ECMO as well as Roboa. I've heard great things about that course, actually. It's one of the ones on my list to, to try and go to at some point in the future. Oh, yeah, for sure. Next one's coming up uh, April 2020. Okay. So the, we've got you on the podcast today because you wrote a fantastic post on the MCRIT site and about Reboa, which is what we're focusing on today. And it's also relevant for us here in the UK. There's a randomized control trial going on at the moment. And I think for those of us who are working in the major trauma centers, the patients who might, and we're going to talk about this as we go along, benefit from Reboa are often the ones that, how can I put this, that make you feel bad. Because in particular, there's the group of patients who have significant pelvic bleeding who come in maybe conscious who just bleeds death and oh gosh those patients are tough yeah i agree it's uh there's a subset of patients that have bleeding in areas that are uh very difficult to control um and they exsanguinate there and these are really potentially preventable deaths uh in my opinion and in several other people's opinions and that's really been the impetus for developing novel and innovative uh, means of hemorrhage control, such as Reboa. Okay, so we're going to make a presumption here that everybody knows what Reboa is, but that's probably unwise because I'm not entirely sure I always understand it myself. So let's just remind everybody, what are we talking about when we say Reboa? Sure, yeah. So Reboa stands for Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta. And what that is, is really just um, putting a, a balloon catheter through the femoral artery up into the aorta and inflating the balloon above a point of critical hemorrhage. So essentially, it's like an internal tourniquet. Uh, you can imagine it in that way, um, where you're stopping bleeding um, below that point uh, in an attempt to allow time to get these patients to the definitive care that they need. Um, and so there's a, a variety of different um, equipment you can utilize for it, and uh, it, that's evolved over time. But the concept of all these all these catheters are the same. And actually, it's not particularly radically new. It's been around as a concept for quite some time, I think. Yeah, yeah. You can actually go back to the Korean War, where the uh, 
first kind of iteration of Roboa came out by a uh, military uh, vascular and trauma surgeon. And then it, it gained a little bit of interest and there was a lot of concerns and issues about technique and training and how to do it. And so it fell out of favor until about the turn of the century when our vascular surgical colleagues started developing endovascular techniques for uh, ruptured AAA patients. And that's really where this then became a feasible option. You know, it's around the same time, remember the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were really ramping up, as were unfortunately the number of uh, allied casualties. And so the military was looking at options to minimize that uh, mortality. And they started looking at this again in animal labs and then through translational science brought it into human practice. And for those of us who like really simple explanations, what we're talking about really is gaining access to the femoral arteries in the groin and then passing a catheter using using a Seldinger technique to gain access to the femoral arteries, passing a, a catheter up into the aorta and then inflating a balloon and then controlling that from basically from the groin. That that would be a, a, a very basic explanation. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. But would that be fair? No, that's that's completely fair. Now, question again, because I think there is variety across the world and particularly a difference between the US and here is you can inflate that balloon at different points. So in the UK, generally speaking, I think virtually everybody's doing what we call a zone three inflation, which is at the lower end of the aorta just to take off the iliacs. But there are zone one and zone two, which I think particularly zone one is potentially used in the US. Is, is that is that true or is that something I've made up? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's perfectly right. So uh, you can divide the uh, aorta into three zones, uh, just like you said, zone one, two, and three. Zone one is the area from the uh, left subclavian down to the celiac, or in, in simpler terms, just in the descending thoracic aorta. And inflating the balloon there essentially cuts off all blood supply below the diaphragm. So for example, if you're suspecting someone's bleeding from a big liver injury or something like that, then you might want to put the balloon up in zone one. Um, zone three is right by the bifurcation. So as you said, it takes out uh, the circulation below that point to the iliacs, to the legs, to the pelvic vessels. Um, and the uh, injury type that we're primarily using that in is isolated pelvic fractures, um, and even junctional junctional injuries to the at the groin that are too high to be controlled by a tourniquet. And zone two is in between those two areas, and that's an area we actually try and avoid inflating the balloon just because there's so many different branch vessels coming off the aorta. At that point, it's very difficult to know whether you've achieved hemorrhage control by inflating in that zone. So that's uh, kind of the zones of the aorta uh, summarized for you. Okay, so this all sounds great. We can control hemorrhage, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. So I, I want to hear from somebody like yourself who's doing this, because I, you know, I admit I'm not doing this in the UK at the moment. About which patients are you are you actually doing this in in real life? Not just the theoretical stuff that we see in the papers, but what are the, what's, give me some examples of patients who you would say, okay, this is a candidate for Reboa, and, and then maybe we'll go on to thinking about exactly how do you actually physically do it in the department. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's been a topic of huge debate. And really, this is the patient who comes to you and is in extremis after, uh, and still in extremis after you've done uh, your usual stuff that we're doing for damage control in the resuscitation room. So you get a patient in who's a major trauma activation and uh, come in, you uh, attempt to control any external hemorrhage, you uh, 
try and uh, administer early blood products, and they are still either the what are the term the transient or the non-responders. And so that's the that's the subset of patients we're trying to identify in whom this would be of benefit. And it's not always easy because you know these patients are very dynamic. Uh, some will respond to a unit of blood, and uh, you know after initially looking very bad, they'll respond to a unit or two of blood and be fine. And others uh, will very rapidly deteriorate. So trying to identify those, I think, is in part is knowing the anatomical and physiological aspects of it, but also a little bit of a nuance that comes with experience of managing these really sick trauma patients. What I really liked in that little sequence that you had then is this idea, and I think it's so obvious when you think about it, but it was just explained to me very well, fairly recently, is you have a an escalation of hemorrhage control. And so you have to do the basics well before you end up thinking this is going to be a Reboa type situation. So, you know, direct pressure, indirect pressure, um, use of clotting agents. And then we're sort of starting to get to the point where we're thinking about doing these more advanced techniques. And the reason why I mention that is because there's always a, this is not just about Reboa, this is about all new technologies that when they arrive, people say, right, we've got this new technology. We can do this great, amazing thing but without necessarily doing the basics first. I thought it was a really important point that you made, that you do the basics first. Yeah, very important to do so. So Reboa, just like any other you know, new resuscitation device, is just another adjunct. Uh, it's just another tool in the box. And so you know, if, you, if you're not doing the basics well, then uh, you can put in all the Reboas you want and you know, it, it wouldn't be of benefit to the patient. So really focus on being a, a a really good resuscitation doctor and managing your trauma patient and utilize this in the appropriate situation to augment your care. Just take a little break in the podcast there. Just tell you about a couple of exciting things that are going on. Firstly, the MSc, which we've been running at Manchester Met for several years now, is expanding. We're taking on new students, we're revising the course, and hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be allowing paramedics to get onto the course as well. So we'll have a truly multi-professional, multidisciplinary master's in emergency medicine with lots of different modules that you can tailor to your requirements. So get on there. Have a look at that and by all means, get in touch and we'll tell you more. Second thing is, if you want to help support the podcast, then please do. You can follow the links to give us a little bit of support financially to keep things free and open access. That's also on the website. Look for details. Thank you. The number of patients, so following my logical sort of thoughts on that, is the number of patients. We're not going to be doing this every day, are we, Seth? It's not going to be something which is a routine, very common event. That must make it quite challenging for you to get a team who's skilled, prepared and trained uh, and up to speed for when it does actually happen. What's been your approach for that? Yeah, it is a it is a big challenge because um, even in uh, our our trauma center here in Philadelphia sees approximately twenty eight hundred to three thousand trauma patients a year, which is an average for a U.S. level one trauma center. And uh, looking at a needs analysis, we might end up putting in Roboa maybe once a month. And so, you know, given the number of physicians that are rotating on different shifts and on different call schedules. It might be that the time the robot is needed, it might be that person's first time that they're doing it, or they haven't done it in, you know, a year or something like that. So how do you maintain that skills? And so this kind of goes into that stepwise approach we were talking about earlier to try and identify the patient um, who would benefit from robot. And so uh, what we're trying to do is to maintain some of the key skills that you need for robot. And one, what we found through time is 
that the real time limiting step for doing Reboa is being able to get access to the common femoral artery in a shocked patient. And you can imagine, you know, someone who's trying to die on you, getting access to that vasoconstricted vessel can be really challenging. So if that's going to be your key step and, you know, your, your sick patients would benefit from having our, uh, arterial line monitoring, we're trying to get patients or we're trying to get our teams to actually put in common femoral arterial lines early to maintain that, maintain that skill and develop that muscle memory to be able to do it. Because once you get that in, it's relatively easy to progress to the next steps of upsizing your arterial line and getting the Reboa catheter in. But getting that first access can be extremely challenging. So that's one way we can try and maintain skills um, in being able to do it. And then number two is is use of simulation. And so we've developed a, a trainer to utilize the uh, Reboa catheter. And so from time to time, we'll use our InsightU simulation program to have a Reboa scenario, and that can give a refresher to people as well about when this might be indicated or not. I think it's worth mentioning, of course, that just putting the lines in isn't just for the purpose of this. I think you and I have spoken before about how useful it is to have good arterial access in any critically unwell patient. And certainly when you've got the patient who you've got what I, what I call that ongoing resuscitation, so you're constantly having mm-hmm. to go back and take you know additional gases and you really do want to know what the blood pressure is, you know, minute by minute, then early placement of lines is good. So it's not just for this, it's actually a good thing to be doing for a lot of our very sick patients, medical or surgical. Yeah, that's quite right. You know, we get more and more cr- uh, critically ill patients, non-trauma patients as well, uh, people in septic shock who are starting pressers on in the emergency department. And then so, you know, there's building evidence that having a central arterial line as opposed to a radial arterial line, which we've traditionally always done, is probably more reliable in giving you the information you need. And so it's uh, if you're going to be putting in the line anyway in indicated cases, then uh, uh, maintain your skill by putting a common femoral arterial line in instead. We had a little think about these sort of things. Tell me, maybe just tell me a little briefly about what's it actually like in the recess room when you're trying to get these things done? Is it an additional stressor or is this something which you've managed to integrate into your team such that it's part of the culture? It's... I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. Uh, you know, when when uh, it comes time that this patient may benefit from Robo, it's always a challenge with something that's less frequently done. Sometimes people know about it, but might not think about it until a little later than they perhaps should have. And so that adds additional stress of, you know, okay, we need to do this now, but time is already against us and uh, we're well behind the eight ball on it. Um, and so that provides an additional stressor. And so how do you go about that or how do you change the culture uh, to do that? So not only do we look to train our um, physicians how to do this uh, and tell them about the indications and contraindications, we'll also empower our nurses to, to learn about this and know about the equipment and know which case might uh, might benefit from it. And so Sometimes a nurse might prompt, hey, you know, what do you think? Is this a Reboa case? And just that question being put in the air suddenly, you know, makes something click in in the team leader's mind. Hey, yeah, you're right. I didn't think about it, but uh, you're right. Uh, This might be a case. Let's go ahead and do that. And then finally, we reinforce this through uh, case review. And so we'll have regular case reviews and uh, have a discussion, you know, should we have thought about Reboa in this particular case or not? And uh, that has the benefit of having 
many different uh, experienced clinicians in the room who can provide their input about uh, whether we should have done it or not. And so all those ways can change your culture. And it is, it does take time. And, you know, especially challenging is that the evidence surrounding Roboa is still a little bit up in the air. And so maybe not everybody's bought into it, but uh, nevertheless, we've seen cases where we definitely uh, have shown benefit from utilizing it. I think that's an interesting one, isn't it? I think the, the jury is actually out on the, the the standard of the evidence at the moment. We're still working on the basis of observational trials because I think Rabot has done quite a lot in other places like Japan, has been around for ages, and also from case reports. And the case reports and, and some of the observational data is quite, it's quite compelling, actually. But there was an interesting trial which you reviewed for us on St. Emlyn's looking at the US not showing an association with survival with endovascular resuscitation. But there's there's a huge number of confounders in that. So we, we just don't know at the moment, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the uh, the overall evidence is, is uh, poor. It's difficult to do a, a robust trial on this. Um, you know, there are attempts to do it in the US. The, the trial I, you mentioned that was published in, uh, in JAMA Surgery earlier this year, unfortunately suffered from some confounders, but uh, nevertheless, you know, just provides us a little bit of thought and perspective about, you know, who is the right patient, when should we be doing it? And, uh, you know, we should all be uh, contributing to any existing registry data that is there because with with, uh, interventions like this, it is very difficult to perform a randomized control trial. But the if we have a bulk of observational evidence that we can look at that's well collected, including people's, you know, bad cases. And I think that's really important because we need to see the good experience as well as the bad. Um, Then we can at least draw reasonable conclusions about um, where where this uh, technique's place is in uh, overall resuscitative care. So as we always say on St. Emlyn's, you know, we use the best available evidence at the time. And sometimes the evidence isn't fantastic, but we use the best that we've got. And I think we're in that zone at the moment. Well, thinking of zones because we're thinking of a rebellion, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And moving on, though, I th- there was another thing which you put into the MCRIP blog, which I thought was you know fascinating and really important. And again, it's one of those things which is so obvious when you say it, but it's just essential, is that Reboa is not a definitive treatment. It is something which is going to allow you to move to the next stage. And I think there was an emphasis in your in your blog that that's really important. And that as a team leader, you've got to be thinking about not that this is the end point, but this is where are we going next and how does it influence that journey? Yeah, very much so. So in you know in the, the courses I teach and the lectures I give, I emphasize that it's much less about the procedure itself and much more so about the system in which you're doing this procedure because if you haven't thought about those next steps, then you might as well, and I hate to say it, you might as well be killing your patient by what you're doing. So causing iatrogenic injury and morbidity and mortality. Because the reality is you're, if you think about it, you're, especially in zone one, you're cutting off the circulation to half of the body. So the kidneys, the gut, the spinal cord, the limbs are all now under an ischemic burden. And the reality is the longer you leave that balloon up, the worse the outcomes in terms of later multi-system organ dysfunction and death because of that. So if you haven't thought about, you know, what the next step is, okay, the balloon is up, now I need to get to the operating room. And even that can be something 
that people will challenge. Well, I work at a level one trauma center. Of course, the, I can get to the operating room in five minutes. Well, can you? So we decided to test it out when we implemented it at another hospital that I was working at. And the time that people thought it took to get the patient from the resuscitation bay to the operating room was very different from what the reality was because nobody factored in that you had to um, get the patient on a transport monitor and get some help in uh, getting or moving the patient and getting into the lift and getting up to the operating room and actually getting them onto table. And so all those things are going to the detriment of the patient because um, that balloon is up and uh, it's very unforgiving um, if you don't think about it. So it really has to be a system of caring, whether you're bringing this in in hospital or pre-hospital, that's the challenge in utilizing this within uh, your trauma care. So that's, you know, I don't like workshops that are teaching you just how to do the procedure because if they don't emphasize the uh, the element of uh, systems of care and the importance of time, then you'll end up having clinicians who are doing this without due thought and respect for what this balloon can do in terms of damaging effects. I think that's a really, really fascinating and an essential point. I think it must be quite challenging to both be responsible for the procedure and trying to run the whole thing. And I, I can see in the system, if we were to adopt this, we'd actually have to separate teams to have actually the procedural team very separate from the person who's running the whole thing. So they don't get too task focused and lose situational awareness and keep the patient running through and all the liaison and about definitive care. So yeah, really challenging environments. We're not doing zone one, as we said before. I think our alternative in that area in the UK will be a thoracotomy and aortic compression. But there aren't many people doing that either. So I think it's really fascinating. Zephyr, we've, we've talked through all of these things and people can, as I said, they can go over to the MCRIT website and have a look a little bit more um, about what you said about it there. There was a joint position statement this year, which was from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma, which everybody will know, I'm sure. That was a little bit controversial as well. I just thought get we're sort of heading towards the end and feel about where you feel that the the standards and protocols are at the moment and with your experience of working on both sides of the Atlantic how you think this might be something maybe or maybe not working in the UK. Good point to bring up about the joint statement. So the first joint statement actually came out a couple of years ago and that caused a fair amount of controversy because it was overly very prescriptive about um, who could do it and there was severe limitations placed on emergency physicians to do it. And so a fair few people on social media and other venues raised a stink, including me. And so we actually big uh, win for our specialty as well as allied specialties that we got invited back to the table this past summer to revise the statement which just came out in the last month or so. And again, it kind of talks about some of the stuff that we've just spoken about, that the evidence is overall pretty poor, that we need to emphasize systems of care and appropriate training. And so long as you are a clinician that's um, well-versed with uh, trauma care and uh, have some basic skill sets, you can certainly attend a, uh, an appropriate course and learn how to do this, as long as you can then implement it within the system of care. And that's really kind of the crux of, uh, of the statement. And it talks a little bit more about different environments that you can use, including military use as well. Um, so it's well worth a read. It's open access on Trauma Surgery Acute Care Open. That's the journal um, for you to look at. And uh, we can probably put a link to it in the show notes. And in terms of use in the UK, so I've been lucky in my in my uh, 
journey with Reboa to have worked with the London Air Ambulance team for the last several years in their development of uh, Reboa. And they've been probably at the forefront of utilizing this, both in hospital and pre-hospital in the UK. Uh, and certainly, I think London had a significant uh, burden of pre- potentially preventable death from primarily pelvic hemorrhage from the prototypical case was the um, cyclist who's run over by a vehicle and has a crushed pelvis. And so that was kind of their big impetus for developing and kudos to them. They've uh, developed a pre-hospital viable option now as well. But in other places in the in the UK, I think, have adopted this as part of the UK Reboa trial. Uh, so I think several centers have taken it up in that instance. And um, at my last count, I think they've enrolled over 50 patients into the trial already, which is uh, good. But um I think each individual place does need to, and this accounts for the U.S. as well, that each individual place needs to do a real needs assessment about, you know, do they have the patient population that would benefit from this? Um, and uh, Ed Barnard uh, and his group did a uh, overall U.K. analysis of potential patients who might benefit, published a few years ago in the EMJ, uh, looking at the TARN network database um, and uh, found a small uh, percentage of patients who, who nevertheless had a very high mortality, who might benefit mainly centered around the uh, major trauma centers. I think you have to be more granular than that. You have to look at your own center's population to see, you know, should I invest the time and effort um, into training and maintaining skills in doing this? And will this benefit our patient population? And if the answer is yes, if especially if you're seeing a uh, small but significant, especially probably young patient population who would otherwise have survived if this intervention was available to them, then I think it might be worthwhile in your center to to adopt this. But at the same time, kind of keeping in mind all the other aspects that need to go hand in hand for this to develop mainly as part of a multidisciplinary team effort to implement it. Excellent. I think it's a pretty good place to stop, actually. Um, it feels almost that we've come sort of uh, full circle. So starting off by talking around, you know, what is Reboa and, you know, how good is the evidence and then finishing up with, well, We've described the technique and we know what it's working. We've got some great cases that I've heard of and you've probably seen, well, I know you've seen because I went to a presentation, you talked about them, that it appears to have made a dramatic difference. But it's not necessarily ready for prime time for everybody just yet. However, the learning that can take place whilst you're thinking about setting up a Reboa service, looking at your patient populations, looking at the way that you organize your teams, looking at the potential for gaining early central access, arterial access, um, in many sorts of resuscitations, I think it may be one of those techniques that even if you don't end up doing it yourself, there's potentially some fairly significant learning around general resuscitation care that we could all take on. Yeah, very much so. And with that, I'm going to thank you so much for your time. Uh, what time is it where you are at the moment? Uh, so it's about 11 o'clock right now in the morning. 11 o'clock. So it's roughly the middle of the afternoon mm-hmm. here. It's just going dark on, a, on what's been a lovely winter day. So I will thank you for your time. Um, thank you for everybody who listens. And I hope you're enjoying your emergency medicine at the moment. We're cranking up for winter, which means that it's going to be busy. But you know what? It's also going to be fascinating. And we're going to do some great things. And we're going to do some wonderful medicine. So that's over here. Zaf, I guess it's the same with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Simon. I really appreciate being part of this and wish everybody a very uh, safe and happy winter. Mm-hmm.